Hi there. This is City Booking Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grumman, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Welcome to City Book and Company. Today we're talking with Mickey Gilley, one of the biggest country music stars ever to come out of Houston and probably the city's most famous nightclub impresario ever. Looking forward to getting the backstory on Urban Cowboy and Mechanical Bulls and all his number one hits. We'll get to that in just a bit. We're coming from you, I should tell you, from the residences at La Column d'Or, which has just opened. It's a fabulous new tower built by the Heinz Company in partnership with the Zimmerman family, the old La Column d'Or hotel in the front, this beautiful tower in the back in the Montrose neighborhood, 32 stories. It's got kind of a concierge deal where it's part residences, part hotels, fabulous development. We're one of the first people to get in here, beautiful facility. So we're happy to be coming to you from Montrose in the residences at La Colondor. Before we get to Mr. Gilly, let me introduce Brant Croucher, who is my co-host today. Hi, Brant. Hello. So Brant, I especially wanted you to be part of this conversation today because we're interviewing a, a country musician. And you are, I don't know exactly how you describe yourself, but I think you're kind of, among many other things, a country musician. <laughs> yes. Yes. I would say yes. Uh, I used to always say country adjacent, but it definitely leans that way. So I read on, you have a website for your music and you have a bio on there that you, I, I think autobiographical, in which you say, and I quote, I've mowed lawns, I've delivered pizzas, I've made lattes, I spent half a decade working in the corporate world, I've worked retail, I've hated working retail, I've waited tables, bartended, pretended to be a freelance writer. I think you actually are actually a freelance writer, (laughs) because you've written for me. I've been a day laborer, worked a call center, and sold houses. I once ran a small event staffing company, I've even been paid to sing songs in all kinds of places. When someone asks you at a cocktail party, what do you do for a living, what do you say? (laughs) Well, I usually laugh. And then I, I, you know, that's a great question. A lot of things, I guess. Most of my life, I've been interested in a lot of things, as you can see. And as you read that, I'm reminded that I probably need to update some of that because there's a (laughs) few more entries since I wrote that a few years ago. But no, now I say that I'm a, I'm a builder and I'm a songwriter. And those are two parts of me that are, uh, you know, just who I am now. And and I think that's what gives people an idea, I guess, of where you place value. I think none of us are any one particular thing, but I guess the overall goal of that question is to sort out what people do for a living. So I run a, uh, a building company and then I'm a songwriter. And how does music fit into your life these days? Aside from the fact that you have a day job where you're building houses, it's also been a pandemic you may have heard. So how is the music side of your life progressing? Yeah. So the pandemic has kind of uh, ground to a halt almost everything we do with music. I say we because my wife and I do a lot of performing together these days, which is great. You guys are great together. Yes. She's incredible. Elaine Belasia. And uh, as long as we've known each other is as long as we've enjoyed performing together. So it makes it a lot of fun. Um, It also makes it easier, you know, because uh we both have full-time jobs and careers, but this is also a part of our lives that's just who we are, and it's a big part of our story. And so, you know, we do these shows that we really get excited about. We do house concerts. We've done a lot of charity things. Most of what we do now related to music, you know, we use to support some of the organizations that we're involved with. That's a big part of who we are also, and that's really important to us. So to get back to what you asked, um, I would say 
I had big ideas in 2020 at the beginning of 2020 for creating new music, putting new recorded music into the world. And, uh, you know, then we found ourselves in March till now, uh, just trying to kind of hang on and exist through all this. So I'm hopeful that in 2021, we're back behind microphones again. Do you sense a change your trajectory of the way you write music, what you write songs about. Are you writing music? I'm having a hard time writing right now. And maybe I'm not alone in all of this. I don't, I don't think I'm, so. Uh, you know, you feel guilty about it because you think you should have all this sort of reset moment that people talk about. And then that would be a moment that you'd have all this creative energy and all this time. But that's not how the creative process works, is it? It's not for me. And I'll tell you, there probably is a wealth of um, stuff from which I'll be able to draw at some point. I kind of revisit stuff later. And for me, it's easier to figure out where that fits in context and how I really feel about it. And and I think I do a lot of writing about in the past, I guess, in a past tense. It's it's more difficult for me to process all of it as it's happening. And I think we're all going to have, you know, this time that we need to process what this year has been. I mean, it's extraordinary. So I'm not, you know, I haven't written, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, yo, boy, if I found a you know, a wealth of things to write about. And I'm just, you know, every night I'm, I'm up and I'm with a guitar and my piano, you know, I'd love to tell you that. Uh, but I think it's just been about maintaining, uh, this year. And, and I'm hopeful that, you know, as we start to get out of this, as we're starting to see the light at the end of this tunnel, you know, that maybe we can revisit some of this and, and that maybe there is some stuff there that we're excited to share, or talk about, or any of that. Well, you're a terrific musician. I've always enjoyed your music. Well, you know, that's really nice. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I know that you admire Mickey Gilley as much as I do. I do. I'm very excited to talk to him. Mickey Gilley had an unbelievable 39 top 10 country hits between 1974 and 1988, 17 of which went to number one, including Don't the Girls All Get Prettier at Closing Time, which was in 1976, and his cover of Ben E. King's Stand By Me in 1980. He also ran a little honky-tonk in Houston called Gillies that was made world-famous in the 1980 movie smash Urban Cowboy, which also kicked off an international country music craze. We will talk to Mickey Gilly about all of that and much more after a very short break to hear from a valued sponsor. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. Welcome to CityBook and Company. Mr. Gilly, thank you so much. 
I want to start at the beginning with you, if that's okay. Sure. Our listeners might find it interesting that you and I are from the same very small town in northeastern Louisiana called Faraday and the Mississippi River Delta. Folks have often wondered if there's something in the water there because you're not the only superstar to come from Faraday. Your cousins, Jerry Lee Lewis and Jimmy Lee Swaggart, are also from Faraday. What's the story there? Is there something in the water? Well, I guess it's kind of odd that three guys out of Faraday, Louisiana, six months different in age, would kind of a little small town and have success in different kinds of music. Of course, Jerry Lee's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Reverend Swaggart has outsold everybody you can think of in the uh, gospel field. And I had 17 number one songs in the country chart. So maybe there's something in the water. I hope so. But I kind of think it's probably something to do with our family genes. You know, the talent came from the Lewis side of the family. And uh, and Jerry Lee, of course, is, I think, one of the most talented people that I've ever grown up with. Uh, I think he was one of the best in the business as far as entertainers is concerned. The musical talent. I mean, did, is it really in the genes or did you learn to play the piano together as kids? How did that? And you have a very distinctive style. I think you've described as banging. We grew up in the Assembly of God Church, listening to the gospel music. And of course, my cousin, Jerry Lee, he, he got kicked out of the Bible college there in Wichita, Texas, I think, <laughs> from playing My God is Real, you know, with a sort of a boogie type beat with the left hand. But the bottom line was, is that uh, uh, he, he was he was good at what he did at, at the keyboard. And it, it was natural for, of course, me and Jimmy to be around him all the time, him and playing, not to get, uh, you know, into the music industry as far as the piano is concerned. I never dreamed that I would end up in the country music field like I did. But uh, when he came into Houston, Texas uh, with a whole lot of shaking and I'm making a dollar and 25 cents an hour doing construction work. And I'm thinking, if he can do this, I can, too. And that's when I threw my hat in the ring. I didn't know it's going to take me 17 years before I'd have a number one song in the country charts, which was Room Full of Roses back in 1974. Had I thought that at the time, I might have had different thoughts about it. But once I got in the music business, I enjoyed doing what I was doing. And the music became uh, sort of a obsession of mine as far as uh, continuing on with what I was trying to do. And I worked one club for 10 years there on Spencer Highway in Pasadena called the Nessadale. Wow. So you skipped over kind of an interesting part that I want to ask you about. How did you make your way to Houston in the first place? How do you go from Faraday, Louisiana to Houston, Texas? I met a little girl and fell in love with her. And uh, I followed her, her into uh, the Houston area. Uh, her father was uh, doing construction work. And he uh, when we got married, and uh, he, of course, he took me in as far as being out of high school, I went out of high school. I went to the 10th grade and uh, I became a construction worker. And actually, I was a, more or less like a, a gopher, you might say, like in the film, The Urban Cowboy. Yes, I sir. for everything, you know, I did everything they wanted me to do from filling in for a operator that wasn't there or from filling up the smudge pots to keep uh, the cars from running into the, the ditch that we were digging, that type of thing. I mean, you name it, I had a machine needed to be all degrees. I, I got to do that too. What, whatever they needed me to do, but the bottom line was I was making a dollar twenty-five cents an hour when my cousin Jerry Lee came into town, and I saw how well he was doing the music business. And I'm thinking, if he can do this, you know, uh, I can too. And and uh, that's when I threw my hat in the ring. Like I said, 17 years later, I have a number one song with Room Full of Roses. And in the meantime, and Brant may have some thoughts about this, but you, you were kicking around between working for a dollar twenty-five and Room Full of Roses. You were working clubs, Houston, New Orleans. What was that part of your life like? Well, once I got into the music business and I got out of the construction end of it, and I dedicated my life to music, I began to try to find work as far as a musician was concerned. Uh, I wasn't schooled in the piano, so I couldn't read, but I could play by ear. And I could sing. I wasn't a great singer, but I was starting to pick it up. As The more I did, the better I got at it. So 
when I landed the job in Houston, after traveling around the country, uh, I ended up playing one club for 10 years. And the reason why that I was so successful was because I could do my cousin's music. I didn't realize at the time that I was doing a tribute to my cousin Jerry Lee at the time, but that's what it amounted to. Every time he'd have a hit record, I would pick up and do the song because it was very simple for me to sort of emulate what he was doing because I'd watched him play so many times. And uh, when he came out with uh, the, started coming out with all the country songs, of course, I mean, back then I wanted to be a rock and roll star too, you know, like him. I was singing Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking and, uh, you know, uh, Breathless and all the, his hit uh, High School Confidential. And the people come out to hear me perform Jerry Lee's music. But then I started doing, you know, Fats Domino, Little Richard, and uh, whatever was popular on the top 40 at the time. I wasn't very good at it, but I was good enough to hold a job. <laughs> so I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again. Never hassle with providers. Only deal with real simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. You know, I, I, before we completely leave your childhood in Faraday, because that's where I'm from, where you're from, what are your memories of growing up in a small town in the Deep South? And were you guys good kids? I mean, were you were you mischievous kids? I mean, ha, what was it like growing up in that time period in that part of the world? Well, we were just kids growing up, watching the football games, uh, trying to play ball, uh, playing stupid games. Like in the book, this gentleman wrote about me and Jimmy and Jerry. We used to play this game called Unconquered, what we called it, at least, you know. And uh, they, if one person did something, the other two had to do it. If they didn't do it, they were conquered. Well, we didn't want to be conquered. So we, we it's one we hadn't hurt ourselves because they were jumping off of slides, jumping off of buildings, <laughs> uh, you know, just doing crazy things. And uh, my cousin Jerry Lee walked the railing of the Mississippi Bridge there in Vidalia and Natchez. Of course he did. <laughs> and when he did that, I said, I've had it. I'm done. And he slipped and fell. He'd have been in the Mississippi River. We wouldn't have had a Jerry Lewis. That have been the history of music would have been different. <laughs> He ended up winning the game, I guess you could say. So you told me this story before. You recorded a song in the 50s called Ooey Baby, which is not the Ooey Baby that a lot of us are familiar with. And that was not a hit for you until much later. Tell that story, Mr. Gilly. My first record was in 1957. I saved up $200. And at the time, I was making $1.25 an hour. I was married. I had three kids. And I saved up $200, went to a recording studio with the help of my family. And uh, I made a recording of a song called Tell Me Why and Ooh Wee Baby. And I got a guy to help me produce it. 
I wrote both sides of the recording. The record, there's only 500 copies of the recording pressed up. It never got played on the radio. It never got <laughs> any place except the distributor. 300 copies was returned to the guy that recorded it for me, which meant 200 copies of that recording got out in Houston, Texas. Now, with the success with the Urban Cowboy and everything was going on, 50-something years later, I walk into my office down in Texas, and my office manager walks over to me, and she says, did you ever do a song called Ooh Wee Baby? And I'm thinking, you know, where in the world would you hear that at, you know? I mean, how did she ever hear this? And, and I ask her, and she says, I got an email from the Yo Play Yogurt Company in Ireland, and they want to use a song by Mickey Gilly called Ooh Wee Baby in a commercial, and a third-second clip of it. And I told her, I said, they got the wrong Ooh Wee Baby. And I'm thinking they got the one that Frankie Ford had out, you know, Ooh Wee, Ooh Wee Baby, let me take you on a sea cruise. And I said, that's got to be that, because, you know, who ever heard of this recording, Ooh Wee Baby? But sure enough, it was Mickey Gilly. And uh, when she sent him a letter and said, Mickey Gilly said that you got the wrong Ooh Wee Baby, and they sent a letter back and said, the one we have is by Mickey Gilly. If this is the guy that wrote and recorded the song, what does he want for a 30-second clip we want to use it in a commercial? And I was smart enough at the time. I said, send him an email and ask him what the going rate is. They used that song for three years, and for the three years they used it in Ireland, never brought the commercial to the States. They sent me a total of $55,000. So that was a pretty good $200 investment. I would say so. This is Brant Croucher. Hey, I uh, wanted to ask you about Room Full of Roses, your first big hit. You could talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Well, the bottom line on Room Full of Roses was it's a song that was recorded originally by, uh, as far as I can find out, by George Morgan. That's Laurie Morgan's father. And uh, it came out in the late 40s, early 50s. And I grew up with Jimmy and Jerry. And, of course, we knew the song from listening to it on the, you know, on the jokebox and the radios. And that back then, and those times we was growing up as boys. And Jerry Lee had overlooked this song, Room Full of Roses. Well, it just so happens that I was doing a little local TV show called Gilly's Place in Houston, Texas, on Channel 39. And um, happened to sing a song called She Called Me Baby All Night Long on the show. Walked into the club one night, and the lady had the jukebox in Gilly's. She calls me over, and she says, today on your TV show, you did my favorite song. I said, what was it? She said, she called me baby all night long. And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, that song was recorded by Harlan Howard. And she says, I know I'm in the jukebox business. And that record's out of print, and I want you to record it for me. I said, for what? And she said, I got 300 jukeboxes. I'm going to put it on all of them, and it'll be good for you here at the club. And I said, well, ma'am, I said, I ain't made a record in quite some time now. I said, the club's doing well. My TV show's doing well. And when I made records back in the late 50s and early 60s, nothing was happening for me. Now we're in, in 1973, and uh, the club's doing well, and the TV show's doing well. And I wasn't really excited about going in to make a recording of She Called Me Baby All Night Long for but she finally convinced me that I should do that so she could put them on 300 jukeboxes. It'd be good for the club. I went in to make the song She Called Me Baby All Night Long in a little recording studio in the Heights called Jones Sound Recording Studio at the time. And uh, I laid the track down on the She Called Me Baby All, all Night Long. When we finished it, the bass guitar player looked over at me and said, what are you going to do for the second song? I said, I hadn't thought about that. He said, well, we need another song that you're going to put She Called Me Baby All Night Long on both sides of the record. <laughs> And I said, you know what? Let's do the old song, Room Full of Roses. And they said, we've never heard that. We've never played it before. So I played it for them on the piano. And uh, they wrote a little chart on it. And they said, okay, uh, simple enough. Let's do it, you know. So we turned the recorder on. And I made it a page on the piano. And I went into it just like the record. And I got about 25, 35, 45 seconds into the song. And I said, wait a minute. No, wait, stop. And uh, the bass guitar player, same guy, looked over at me. And he says, what would you stop for? And I says, 
It's going to sound too much like my cousin, Jerry Lee Lewis. He said, who cares? Nobody's ever going to hear it. <laughs> and when he said that, I said, you know what? You got a point. I said, it's going to be the B side. You know, I didn't give a darn one way or the other. So I said, okay, yeah, you're right. So I'm just major pet and started back in the song. We recorded it. The record, uh, you know, was released with She Called Me Baby on one side, Room Full of Roses on the flip. And we were buying time at on the radio stations there in Houston, advertising Gillies. And so I take it to Bruce Nelson at KENR Radio. And I said, Bruce, when you play the advertisement on Gillies, is there any chance you might play one of these songs? And he said, which side do you want me to play? I said, I don't care. Either side. Just mention the fact that, you know, you know we're at Gillies uh, when he did the ad. And um, so he listened to both sides of the record. And he said, I kind of like the flower song. <laughs> the flower song. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? This was the B-side, you know, and I thought it was a throwaway tune. He put it on and it shot up the charts. I had sold everything I'd ever recorded. And uh, I jump on the, on the plane. I go to Nashville thinking I'm going to walk into a major record company and say, can you take this record and release it all over the country for me? You know, it's a hit in Houston. And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I was just getting ready to leave, tuck my tail between my legs and say, okay, it's over. I'm never going to have a hit record, and uh, except maybe in Houston. And I called a friend of mine by the name of Eddie Kilroy, and he was working promoting other people's recordings. And he said, what are you doing in Nashville? And I said, I came up here with a record called Room Full of Roses. It's a hit in Houston, and I can't get anybody to pick it up and take it nationally for me. He says, I got a company that'll take it. And I said, who? And he says, Playboy Records. I said, are you kidding me? Hugh Hefner's got a record label. I said, I knew he had a magazine, but I didn't know he had a record label. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, we jump on the plane and we fly to Los Angeles. They picked the record up and it, it came on the national charts at 75 with a star on Billboard magazine. And I'm elated. I'm thinking, oh, wow, man, you know, this could be a, a good record for him. And sure enough, it jumped 15 to 18 spots just about every every week, you know, until it went, it went number one for me. And when it went number one, I mean, I, of course, I was excited. I thought at the time maybe I might be a one-hit wonder, so uh, I was holding on to the club, and uh, just so happens that my business partner had booked Conway Twitty at Gillies, and John Conway's coming down. He's listening to the radio. He's hearing Room Full of Roses. Think about this now. I've got one number one song in the nation, and Conway Twitty's got more number ones than any man on the planet in 1974, and he's hearing Room Full of Roses. I get to open a show for him that night. Never had met him before. He hears me do Room Full of Roses at the piano. And I walked back to say hello to him. The first thing he asked me was if I had an agent. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, I'll have somebody down here in a couple of days to talk to you, you know. And I'm thinking, sure you will. Here's a guy that's got, uh, you know, very successful uh, man in the music industry looking at a guy that's got one number one song in the nation. That's it. Not knowing whether I'll ever have another one. And uh, sure enough, this guy shows up two days later. I'm here to sign uh, Mickey Gilly to uh, United Talent. Then I found out that Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn owned the agency, United Talent. Two weeks later, after I'd signed the contract with him to friend to book me, I'm opening the shows for Conway Twitty on the road. So that's how my career got started. Wow. And all of that from a flip side recording in the Heights in Houston, Texas. That went number one. Yep. I heard it the other day on uh, Willie's Roadhouse, started my car up, and if I sent a rose to you, came on, I said, you know, and I listen to it now, and I look back on my career, and I can tell why the song had a little something that uh, I didn't realize at the time. It was an honest recording because it was off the top of my head that, uh, and I, I sang it like I sang it to an audience. It, it was believable, I, even, even though I got some of the lyrics wrong in the song. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Yes, I did. If you ever listen to the record, you listen to where it comes in, where it says, if I took the pedals and would tear them all apart. Yes, sir. The next line, I said, you'd be tearing up the roses just the way you broke my heart. 
And that don't make any sense if you you know what, what I said. <laughs> and what it should have been was if I took the petals and tear them all apart, I would be tearing up the roses. But I didn't say it like that. I said, if I took the petals and would tear them all apart. And the next line, I said, you'd be tearing up the roses just the way you broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it sticks out now. Well, but, nobody uh, would ever known if you didn't tell us. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't notice until uh, the, the guy that uh, told me about, the, you know, it's going to be the B-side. Who cares, you know? And he said, you know, you got the lyrics wrong on that song. And I said, no, I didn't. I said, I, 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 said, I literally changed the, the song says, I want my arms full of you. On the original record is, all I want is my arms full of you. And I changed that to, all I want is my arms around you. And I, I did that on purpose. He said, no, no, no. He said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, in the, when you started in the bridge. And when he called it out to me and I listened to the record again, I said, darn sure did. Never thought a thing about it. Well, it was a good mistake, apparently, because <laughs> th that was 74, I believe. And that was just the beginning. You just exploded after that. And I Well, I had four number one songs in a row. I had Room Full of Roses. I looked at Oregon while searching for a rose. Uh, I had uh, uh, Wind Up Above and City Lights. And uh, then I missed on a song. And then I had She's Pulling Me Back Again. And I had the uh, best record I made in the early years was I Thought Bring It On Home. And it was the number one. I won uh, a record single of the year at the Academy of Country Music Awards show on that particular song. But the best song handed to me was in the, in, in I think, 78, 76, 77, somewhere along in there. The girls all get pretty close in time. Yes, sir. And, uh, of course, uh, even though it wasn't my better, one of my better recordings, the song was uh, such a great song that it was number one for me. The other thing that happened, along about this time, this guy had come down from uh, New York and because and, uh, my, my business partner had put a mechanical bull in Gillies. And he comes down and he writes this article, The Ballad of the Urban Cowboy. And um, all of a sudden, I mean, you know, this article comes out, and my business partner told me, he says, don't say anything bad about the article because I know that you didn't like it. And I said, well, I didn't like it because I thought he was putting country music down. And uh, it was boy meets girl, twang, twang. Boy falls in love with girl, twang, twang. You know, right. this type of thing. Twang, twang after all the sentences. And, and I was upset about it, but he says, don't say anything bad about it because we might get a movie. And I was on my way out to do it. It was either Mike Douglas or one of those shows out there, the talk shows. And you're talking about Aaron Latham, who wrote The Ballad of the Urban Cowboy and Esquire, I guess, in, in the late 70s. Right. And you didn't like the article. You thought it was a put-down. I didn't country. like the article because I thought it put a country music down. It was Boy Meets Girl, Twang Twang. Yes, sir. Boy Falls in Love with a Girl, Twang Twang. I thought he was putting country music down, so I wasn't really happy with the article. But my business partner told me when I was going out to do this show in uh, California, he said, don't say anything bad about this article. He said, because we might get a movie. And I said, what side of the bed you roll off on? <laughs> Who's going to do a movie on the Battle of the Urban Cowboy? And he says, they're looking at John Travolta. And when he said John Travolta, it dawned on me that John Travolta came off of Saturday Night Fever. And what he was talking about could be a country night fever. And when he said that, I said, you know what? I kind of like that article. <laughs> so sure enough, we got to film the Urban Cowboy with John Travolta playing the part. And that's what made it happen. A lot more with Mickey Gilley on our next episode, including the story behind the story of the Urban Cowboy, the movie, the record, the international country music craze, all that next week on CityBook & Company. CityBook & Company is a production of CityBook Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.